0: I commit this to you, Lord. Uh, Will you take these words that I've written and make them into something special? And whatever you want to say to us, Lord, will you give us ears to hear? Thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, it's very lovely to see you all. Um, And I'm glad the microphones come on because I had a bit of a... (laughs) I had a bit of a, um, a malfunction this morning, I thought, oh, I'm speaking this morning, I'll wear a nice frock, so you've got to look at me, so it's important that I look nice, and I didn't think it through, did I, because there's nowhere to put the microphone pack. So it's, it's on my knickers. <laughs> so if you can hear me peeing, it's Caroline's fault, not mine, because she's the one that's got to control the microphone, not me. Okay. Jesting over. Um, (laughs) Okay, so the the series that we're doing in Oasis at the moment is called Encounters with Jesus. And uh, we were given uh, the choice of what we could speak on. And when I saw um, Peter walking on the water, was an option. Um, The immediate thought in my head was the song Oceans. And uh, I said to Carolina, can I have that one, please? Um, And she graciously said yes. uh, Because um, that song is instrumental in my um, going back into acting after a 30-year break. Um, I've I've done a little bit of my testimony in that, which I I will, if there's time, I will uh, bring later on. It's part of the talk, uh, because obviously, you know, that's the reason why I, um, I wanted to do this one. But as I looked into it, um, I actually found some other really interesting stuff. So I hope you like me and you like to find out about the background of things and what things were actually like at the time and everything. Um, so I've done a bit of that first. Um, context, I suppose you could call it. So um, shall we do the... I think it's good to read the passage first. Did I give you that, Caroline? No, okay. So it's Matthew 14, to 32. So I don't know if people want to get Bibles, if they want to... Follow it through, and I haven't written it down, so I'm going to have to go and get one. Um, Do people want Bibles? There's some here. Again, you can tell I'm feeling a bit more scatty about this one (laughs) than the last one. You take one. Oh, you've got one. It's okay. I'll put them on the chair here, and you can help yourself. There we are. Okay, so it's, what is it, Matthew 14, 22 to 32. Because it's always good to know exactly what it does uh, say in the scripture. Matthew. Oh, she's got it, look. Isn't that wonderful? She's a clever girl. Right. Um, immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. "'It's a ghost,' they said, and cried out in fear.' But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And Peter, (laughs) lovely Peter, I love him because he's so impetuous. Says, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. So this actually comes in the middle of of, um, the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, It comes immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. And it comes after, um, just after Jesus has found out that uh, John the Baptist has been murdered, which is why, presumably why, he goes up on the mountainside to pray. So Jesus, um, Peter has already been called. He's been called out of fishing into discipleship. And no doubt in the course of that discipleship, he's seen Jesus heal people, He's heard the Sermon on the Mount. He's no doubt done his share of um, crowd control. Um, He's seen the feeding of the Um, 5,000. Incidentally, uh, when I looked at the feeding of the 5,000 as well to get the context, it it was actually more like 10,000 people because what the gospel actually says is it was 5,000 men. And then it says include uh, um, and also women and children. So if you count sort of like one woman, half the women, half, the women as, half as many women as men and half as many children as men, it's, it's 10,000. It's probably a lot more than 10,000. Just a matter of interest. Um, anyway, it was a lot of people. And after that, Jesus sends the disciples across the lake and tells the people to go home and goes up on the mountain to pray. So the lake was the Sea of Galilee. Um, And you probably know this already, but it's good to to remind ourselves. Um, It's also called called Gennesaret, or Kinneret, and it's not a sea. It's a freshwater lake. Um, It's 13 miles long at its longest point, and 7 miles wide at its widest. And to uh, compare, Lake Windermere is 11 miles long. So it it is actually a lake, it's not a sea. Um, It's freshwater, it has freshwater fish in it, lots of them. Um, And the Jordan, you can probably see, I don't know if you can see on there, but the River Jordan comes down from the top, where it says Corazin. it comes down from the top and goes through the Sea of Galilee and comes out at the bottom and goes down to the Dead Sea. Um, Windermere's actually a lot narrower than this. This is a bigger lake. Windermere is only about a mile wide. The feeding of the 5,000 actually happened near Bethsaida, which is at the top on the right there. Can you see? And when Jesus sent the disciples across the lake, he sent them to Capernaum. So you can see it's really not very far. So it's it's just kind of like they would go out to, it's just the top corner. Do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. (laughs) Um, It doesn't appear to be more than a couple of miles by boat. So how did it come to be such a big deal? Um, Peter and the disciples, a lot of them were fishermen. They could probably swim, almost certainly could swim. Um, in John 21, it talks about Peter when he sees uh, Jesus on the beach, on the um, land. Um, the boat is about 100 yards out to sea, and he jumps in the water. And he would have to, 100 yards is quite far, so he would have to swim. Oh. Why, why were they so afraid? It's only seven miles across at its widest point. Now, in John's gospel, it tells us they'd been rowing for about three and a half miles. So that's a bit weird. Also, um, it tells us that they set out in the evening. Jesus had fed the 5,000. He wanted to go up onto the mountain, um, and he, he sent everybody home because it was evening. So the disciples set out on Lake Galilee in the evening. So um, when Jesus comes walking on the water, uh, the gospel says it was the fourth watch, which is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So if you work it out, they started out in the evening at Bethsaida. Um, they started rowing, and before dawn, by 3 o'clock in the morning, they were still out there at least three and a half miles out, which is half the width of the cross. So What happened? It kind of puzzled me, really. Um, I don't know if any of you have been to Israel. Has anybody been to Israel? Yeah. It's a, it's a very, I found it a strange and interesting country. Um, it's about the size of Wales, so it's not very big. Um, and I had the, I was working on a mashav, which is a farm. And um, one of the sons of the farm was a tour guide. So one day, as part of our reward for working, we were given a tour right from the top of Israel down to the bottom of it, in a car. Um, We went up to, um, I think it was the Golan Heights. It's a very long time ago now, so it's hard to remember. We were up a mountain somewhere. um, And the air was really fresh and clear and pure. Then we went to Haifa, and the air was really humid and damp. And we went to the Negev, which is a desert, and the air was really dry. So you get all kinds of climates in this tiny little country. So the weather is really significant. Um, the Sea of Galilee is in the north of the country, and it's surrounded by mountains. You can see, uh, when you look across it, you can see across it quite easily, um, but you can see across it, and the mountains are beautiful in the, in the distance, but they drop right down into the sea. And what happens is that the weather comes over the mountains and it dumps everything over the lake. And I've had experience of this in the Malverns, if you because you know the Malvern Hills and they've got a, a showground there. And I went to a camp there once. And it was, um, I think it was a Thursday afternoon, which was family barbecue time. And we'd got the barbecues out and we'd put the sausages on. we just put the sausages on. It was a beautiful afternoon. And in the distance, we could see this little black cloud Coming towards us quite fast. Within about, it must have been, it felt like about five minutes, it had reached us. And it brought with this the most horrendous storm I've ever experienced. It, it ripped through the camp, ripped through it for about 10 minutes. We were hanging onto the tent poles, people were being lifted off their feet as they were hanging onto the tent poles. And when it finished, after about 10 minutes, the devastation that it would, was, the tense, whole tents had gone. Whole tents had gone. People had nowhere to sleep. Um, there were people injured. It had caused huge devastation. So you imagine that on a lake. <laughs> um, it's quite surprising how quickly something like that can come in. And the disciples would have known that. Imagine, uh, um, so I've said, imagine the uh, devastation that could cause on water. Um, so they, they had good reason to be afraid um, of the wind on Lake Galilee. So when I was researching this, I came across a report which I found quite interesting of a, a pastor whose name is something like Bill Weitzel, um, and he's a swimmer, and he's made it his business to swim. He swam the length of the Sea of Galilee when he was younger. And at the age of 65, he decided he wanted to do a double width um, at the widest point. Um, He checked the weather very carefully before he started. Um, And the first width he completed as expected. Um, He started at night um, because there's quite a lot of traffic these days on the Sea of Galilee. So nighttime would be a quiet time for him to do it. So he completed the first side. I think we've got a, slide, a picture of him, have we, Caroline? We've got a picture of him? <clears throat> there he is, in the water at night. <clears throat> um, I'm not going to read all of this because it's quite long, but basically he's saying, half fini- I'm half finished, praise God, but could I get back to my start? So he's got a Garmin on his wrist to tell him how far he's going. He's got people in a boat um, helping him across. They're feeding him as he goes. And then he says, Over the next few hours, something began to take place that I am told hasn't been witnessed in 70 years. About one hour into the return, I noticed a film on the water. At first, I didn't pay much attention to it. I wanted to stay positive and move forward. I knew the sun was rise, um, I was due to finish in about 13 hours, but I was slowing down, and I, I set my sights on 14 hours. And then he says, "About 5:30 a.m, I began to notice some light in the eastern sky, a very dirty yellowish color. As the sun rose, it was fully hidden behind what appeared to me to be a dome. I could see the boat in front of me clearly, but as I looked around, I couldn't see land. It's as though we were in a bubble. His Garmin stopped working. The instruments in the boat stopped working, and all they had was the phones to guide them. You remember, this, this is still quite dark. Um, um, and then, eventually, the phones stopped working as well. And... They have no idea where they were. And he said, you know, you can keep your eye on the horizon as a swimmer, but as a swimmer, you zigzag. You know, unless you've got somebody guiding you, you you do go off course. Um, Now that my Garmin watch was not recording, the only way I had to know how far I had gone was to ask the captain. He kept saying I was halfway across. I would ask again, and I was told I had about three miles. But truly, I was slowing, but surely not that much. I would ask again, 2.5 miles to the shore. I was told we were one mile from shore several times. It was becoming obvious to me that we were lost, and I was beginning to wonder how much longer I could keep this up. All Offrey, the captain, could offer me were guesses So he carries on and he's praying as he goes and, you know, the, the problem for him was not knowing how long, much longer he had to continue um, because, you know, he would hate to give up if he was only 20 minutes from shore. The thing that um, finally saved them was um, one of the people on shore had the idea of driving the car, uh, driving his car to the edge to the opposite side and putting on his headlights and shouting. And that's what guided them home. And he eventually did it in something like 17 hours, I think it was. And what that phenomenon was, um, was that sometimes there is a weather that happens that lifts all the desert air from the surrounding deserts, lifts the sand, and brings it and dumps it over Israel. And he said that hadn't happened for 70 years. And... um, it lasted, I think, for two days. Normally, it doesn't last that long either. Um, the, the rains come and wash it away. So my point in telling you this is um, that Peter and the disciples, having lived by Lake Galilee, would know about these weather conditions that can happen. The wind, the, the desert air that can, that can cause you to lose every sense of where you are. I suppose like being in a whiteout when it snows here. So they would have had a great respect for um, the lake and the waters and the dangers of it. So when they set out in the lake, um, it was the wind that was the problem. And no doubt that's why, can we go back to the map, um, Caroline? Um, No doubt that's why they couldn't stay where they were supposed to be going between Bethsaida and um, Capernaum. Um, they must have got blown out because it says they were rowing for three and a half... They'd rowed for three and a half miles. So you imagine, as many as 12 people were rowing and they're not making any headway against the wind. um, But they they would be stuck in the middle of a very choppy lake and it was pitch dark. That's another thing we forget. We've got lights... And even today, around Galilee, there'll be lights. They didn't have that. They didn't have any lights. Um, I went to um, the Isle of Man once, and we, we, we arrived in the darkness, and we had to drive to our destination. And I've never been anywhere so dark. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It was so dark. The only thing were the headlights of the car. Um, And it's really quite disconcerting. We're not used to it. There's a lot of light pollution in modern life. So they were stuck in the dark. And stuck in the dark, um, not going anywhere, don't know where they are. Very choppy sea. And they see this figure coming towards them. No wonder they were terrified. And the thing that I thought about with this is um, we think of Jesus walking on the water. We've heard of that since we most of us since we were small. The disciples had no point of reference for that. They had no point of reference. They had a point of reference, interestingly after for the feeding of the 5,000, because um, in 2 Kings 44, verses 42 to 44, um, Elisha um, foreshadows it. A man came from Baal Shalishah. He brought the man of God 20 loaves of gar- barley bread. They had been baked from the first grain that had ripened. The man also brought some heads of new grain. Give this food to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I put 20 loaves of bread in front of 100 men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat. Do it because the Lord says they will eat and have some left over. Then the servant put the food in front of them. They ate it and had some left over. It happened just as the Lord said it would. So when um, Jesus fed the 5,000, he was basically showing the disciples that he was greater than Elisha. They would have known that story. So they had a point of reference for the feeding of 5,000, but they had no point of reference for someone walking on water. Yes, uh, Moses parted the sea. Um, I think it was in Joshua, um, the priests stand in a, um, a stream, and the, stream, the waters pile up up okay up above and they can get across the stream and both Elijah and Elisha part the waters but nobody had walked on water so they were terrified. Um, I've got no doubt Jesus could have parted the lake if he wanted to maybe it was just easier for him to walk on it. I'm, I'm losing... Uh, yes, I'm losing my point. Um, the point is that the disciples had had experience of the real, live person of Jesus, but at that point, they'd not had the transfiguration, the vision of him with Elijah and Moses. And I don't think they'd had anything more supernatural about him personally. You know, it was about stuff he did for, for others or to, to things, not about he, him himself. Um, they'd had no indication that a new prophet or a man of God or even the Messiah would walk on the water. There's nothing that says your Messiah will come and he will walk on water. So for them, it was an entirely new phenomenon. So no wonder they were afraid. And Jesus speaks and said to them, Be not afraid, it is I. I just wonder what went through Peter's head when he heard that. Because his mind would have been full of what had just happened with the five thousand, he'd have been aware of how great Jesus is. This man has just done something greater than the greatest prophet they've ever heard about. But he's he's not as impetuous as he used to be because he has to check, Lord. If it's you, I'm not sure it's you. Is it you? Is this you? if it's you tell me to come to you on the water because that's ludicrous isn't it tell me to come to you on the water
1: <clears throat>
0: and Jesus said come and after that I don't think Peter hesitates I think he probably also had his in his mind the time when Jesus calmed the storm so maybe he thought that once he got out of the boat Jesus would calm the waters for him but that didn't happen <laughs> He gets out the boat, and he walks, and he walks on the water, same as Jesus does. And it's only when he sees the wind that he starts to sink. And I found this quite interesting as well. And we all know that it's because he's taking his eyes off Jesus, and he's he's afraid, and he hears what's going on around him, that he starts to sink. But note that Scripture doesn't tell us that he actually sinks. He starts to sink, which I find really fascinating because if i step off a boat into the water even into salt water which has a lot of buoyancy what i do is i sink like a stone my head has to go under the water before i can even start to swim but that didn't happen with peter he started i've got this image of him sort of slowly you know the water coming up above his ankles (laughs) he's got time to say lord save me (laughs) so um i think he did pretty well really And he'd got quite far as well because Jesus is near enough to reach out his hand and take hold of it, and take hold of his hand. And I think his rebuke is not really a rebuke. It's, oh, ye of little faith, he's laughing. Why did you doubt? You were doing great. And the end of the story is that um, they get back into the boat and the waves then calm So, uh, what what this made me think of was calling. Peter's been called, he's been called from fishing, and then he was called out of the boat. So, as I said earlier, the song Oceans was very instrumental for me in the decision to go back into acting, because I felt it was God recalling me, if you like, God first called me into acting at the age of 13. I was at um, a camp in the Lake District, um, a Sunday school camp, and uh, we were playing a game of charades. I was, only, yeah, I was quite young, I was about 13. We we're playing a game of charades, the old fashioned game. I don't know if you know it. There's, there's a, a description of it in um, Jane Eyre. And what you do is you have a word. I think the one in Jane Eyre is Bridewell. So they act out a scene where the people have to guess the word bride, they act out a wedding, and then they act out uh, the woman at the well so that people can guess well, and then they do the whole thing. So it's three little scenes that you're acting out, and we were doing that. Um, But I fell ill that night, and it was was meant to be a competition between two groups. Uh, I fell ill that night, and the next day I had to go home, and as I left, I heard someone say, oh no, we've lost our best actress, what are we gonna do? And I just knew, I knew, you know how you know something. I just knew that's what I'm supposed to be doing. I'd never had anybody say anything like that about me before. So, um, yeah, so I was determined. And I had a lot of discouragement. The school I was at honoured sciences over the the arts. Um, when um, When I told my headmaster what I wanted to do, he said, oh, I think you better be a hairdresser. And then somebody else said, be a teacher, you know, as if teaching were something that people do when they're artsy and they can't get a job, which is not what teaching should be. (laughs) I didn't get into drama school the first time around. I didn't have any money to go. Um, They told me to come back in two years and I went back after a year and they accepted me. But there was still the question of the money And at that time, you could get discretionary grants from the government. So I just started writing to York City Council. um, And they kept coming back with a no. And I wrote them a letter. I remember writing them a letter and saying, uh, because we lived in in York at the time. um, And I remember writing them a letter saying, you better open a file under my name then, because I'm not going to stop writing to you until you give me the money. So they did. (laughs) <laughs> which was really great. So I, I went to drama school, and then after all that, um, Jesus placed another calling on my life. And there's a picture of it. Can we have can we have the picture um, slide? Is it what, slide three? Is it? Yeah, there it is. This is my husband. Looks like he's walking on water, doesn't it? (laughs) It's not ice. It's actually a lot shallower than it looks. He thinks he walks on water. He doesn't. And as a newlywed, um, I found I didn't really want to leave him to go on tour for what could have taken me away for 18 months. Uh, um, And also, the other thing that put me off acting um, at that time was... I absolutely hated having to do my own tax books. I really loathed it. It it frightened me. It really frightened me that I would get something wrong and and get in trouble with a tax man. So, um, I think it was was the right thing to do, to give it up at that point. But it didn't mean that my calling died. It just changed in nature. So the acting that I ended up doing was for church, and actually Gillian's just been talking to me about that this morning. I, was, I ran a drama group for my church, and I would write the dramas, and I would be in them to illustrate the sermons. Um, I helped with a local group, youth group, and, and I did the odd drama for, for them, um, but also we had every year a children's holiday club, a, a Bible club, and I would write the serial. That there'd be 20 minutes each day there'd be a 20 minute show each day and I would write an act in that so you know God used the calling that he'd given me just not in the way that I expected it um, and also showed me another string to my bow because I didn't know I could write so uh, yeah um, and during this time I pushed the door a few times to see if I could get back into professional acting and it just didn't open I spent my days caring for my children. And when they went to high school, I looked for a normal, normal job. My mum used to say to me, Come home and get a normal job, Dawn. Normal. Um, So I I did that. I I managed to get a job. And guess what it was doing? God's got such a sense of humour. He put me doing the accounts (laughs) in a small business. So, um, yeah. When it came to emptiness time, and emptiness time is really hard, don't underestimate it, I was so, my calling was so crushed, my belief in myself was so crushed, I did not think um, I could ever do it again. I started scouting around, asking God, what next? What do I do next? My children have gone, I've spent 20 years looking after them, they've been the complete focus of my existence, what do I do now? <clears throat> my first question was is it children's ministry to be honest I hadn't I'd done it but I hadn't actually really felt called to it Um, but I tried again so um, there were no young people at our church at that time so I went to help with the youth at new wine I was the oldest person on the team and it was really exhausting but I did enjoy it Um, and then one day they were giving a talk to the the young people about calling you know what is God calling you to do and I felt like they were speaking to me, because that's what the question I was asking. What are you calling me to do, God? Um, I'd spent 20 years ministering in the church and ministering to my children, and I did not know where God was going to put me in the church next. And then someone had a word from the Lord, and he gave it from the front, and he said, he said, your mission field isn't necessarily the church you don't have to be called to mission within the church god c- can call you to mission in the world and that really rang a bell with me i'd been thinking all the time of what god would call me to in the church um it's kind of like it's a bit you know my head exploded a bit what sh- if i'm not called to mission in the church what should i be doing and the answer came back acting but I did need to check, is this God? Is this what you're calling me to do? I, I wasn't sure. Then they sang the song Oceans, which at the time was a brand new song. And it was, it was just like, oh, Lord, I'm so scared. That was my next feeling. I'm absolutely terrified. How do I do this? I'd lost all my confidence. My training was years back. How on earth do I do this? I had lots of encouragements that I was hearing right. I had people pray for me, um, and actually, at the time, I think Jonathan was doing the front line series here at the church, and one of the things he said was, "Your front line is wherever your job is and one of the things he mentioned was theater, which was like another confirmation, really so it took a lot of courage to leave my part-time financially secure but boring job in accounts and get out of that boat and go into the uh, very uncertain world of acting but I took a deep breath and I did it and I'm absolutely certain that when Peter stepped out of that boat and walked on water he must have felt exhilarated he must have felt so alive because that's how I felt I got the first two jobs I applied for which is quite unusual and it just felt like I'd come back to life after being asleep for years I've had my sinking moments um one significant one was I'd been out of work for five months and I had a proper meltdown in front of the Lord it was a Monday morning about 10 o'clock and I didn't just cry I screamed at him am I supposed to give up what are you doing? I was really, I was really anguished. Um, yeah, 10 o'clock on a Monday morning. At half past one that day, I had a phone call from my agent, and she said, Can you get to Heathrow tomorrow? You're going to Israel to do a commercial. So um, it's, it's very um, roller coaster. You know, you have to trust God so much because you don't know what's around the corner. Um, but He is faithful. Um, I've got slide five written down, Caroline. I cannot remember what it is, <laughs> but the point of telling you this—all this—I hope I haven't bored you. But um, the point of telling you all this is that if you have a, had an encounter with Jesus, then there is a calling on your life. Now, it might be—it might be motherhood. Motherhood is a massive calling. Um, it might be something that seems to other people to be insignificant, but Jesus has called you to something. I'm absolutely convinced of it. If it hasn't borne fruit yet, then you're in the training stage. Like Peter was when he watched the Sermon on the Mount when he saw Jesus um, casting out demons, which he actually sent the disciples to do quite early on in his ministry, that he sent the 72 out. Um, it, it was a, it's all a training period your calling might be within the church or it might not it might start straight away spectacularly or it might take a lifetime to come to fruition as in my case I was called at age 13 I was trained both at a drama school and in my day to day life Even in that job doing accounts, because now I'm not afraid of doing my own books, (laughs) it didn't put me off coming back into acting. It certainly doing that for 13 years took away the fear and loathing. But that calling didn't properly bear fruit until I was in my 50s, my late 50s. I've now been professionally acting for six years, and I'm certain I'm only at the beginning. I hope so anyway. So what I've got to ask you is, what's the dream that God has placed on your heart? Because, you know, you might think it's dead. You might think, oh, that hasn't worked. I must have got that wrong. Is it on a shelf gathering dust? Perhaps it's time to dust it off and lay it before God and say to him like Peter, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. I've got a song I want to sing. which I hope Caroline's got, so that you can sing it too. I thought was very apt. And this was written by Ian White. And this was um, another song that God used to tell me, to to tell Jonathan and I to get out of the boat of the church we were in. I don't know if I can see this. Oh, goodness. Do we have the lyrics for this, Caroline? So I feel afraid.
1: presence in my heart. I cannot see the ending, but it's here. A fire lights my way, what lies across the waves may cause my heart to fear, will I survive the day, must I leave what's known and dear? A ship that's in the harbour is still and safe from harm, but it does not reach the ending It's made for wind and storm Cause my heart to fear. Will I survive the day? Must I leave what's known and dear? A ship that's in the harbor is still unsafe from harm, but it was not meant to be there. It was made for wind and storm, and all I know is you.
0: that you didn't have the words I forgot to give them to Caroline so anyway I think they're lovely words now we're going to go into our small groups so presumably you know where you're going if you're new um, Caroline will be over in the corner here um, and that's the person you need to see thank you for listening